0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome, I wanna add my welcome to Janet's. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and um, it's a real pleasure to be here um, and to speak specifically about this um, story in the big book. You know, it's not necessarily a chapter, it's a story in the big book um, and it's got such great stuff in it. I mean, it's just a really excellent, powerful, um story. It's a story of transformation. And you know, the title that is, you know, it's the acceptance story. And it's had many different titles, but it's the, you know, the it's acceptance was the answer. And um depending on which version you've got, which big book you've got, it's the one I have, it starts on page four oh seven. Um and before I jump in, just, you know, give you a little bit of background of me if you you haven't heard my story before, and you don't know who I am. Um, I, um, you know, and and I, I usually like somewhat of a qualification before we jump into material, so that um, you know, it sort of gives a it gives a a, a sort of an understanding, a, a beginning principle of where where we are. So, um, I. You know, I'm a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety. And um, I came in and out of OA many times. Um, But at the end, the last real time, I was over 300 pounds and I was living um, in a state of morbid obesity and misery. And, you know, I had no acceptance of anything that wasn't pleasing to me, anything that seemed like, you know, it was outside of what I wanted. I would dig my heels in the, you know, in the ground and be like, this isn't right, this isn't fair, this isn't just, shouldn't be this way. Um, And I would use all the will that I could to try to force situations to be to my liking. And, you know, the fact that I was dying of eating food, right? Like I was killing myself by eating. I could not understand what the relationship was to these kinds of concepts of acceptance um and but they're they are very much related so um I came to accept many things in this program and along with that I've had you know a physical transformation of miraculous proportions um and um and a spiritual transformation of even greater proportions, you know, even more miraculous. Um and so acceptance is a big part of it. And um, you know, so I, I always like to start off with like a definition. If I'm ever going to speak about something, I want to kind of define what it is. Um so acceptance is a willingness to embrace reality as it is, even if you don't like it, right? To agree to receive, whether willingly or reluctantly, It's an agreement that you're gonna receive it. Um, Acceptance is deciding not to argue with reality, right? I was like, whoa, spent a lot of time arguing with reality. Um, And acceptance is the action of consenting to receive or undertake something that's being offered. And generally what it is that's being offered is reality his life as it is. And I can either dig my heels in the ground and say, no, no, no. Or I can, you know, open up my hands, like wide open palms and receive what it is. Um, so here it is. It says, we're going to talk about the specific person who the story is about. We're going of story it there. And it's, you know, it tells, sets says here that he came by mistake. he came into AA by mistake. And it says, if there was ever anyone who came to AA by mistake, it was I. Not only did I not think that being an alcoholic was a good idea, I didn't even feel like I had all that much of a drinking problem. Of course, I had problems, all sorts of problems. And here it says, if you had my problems, you'd drink too. That was his feeling. And, um, you know, it says now my major problems were marital. If you had my wife, you'd drink too. So he has certainly not acceptance and certainly not taking any responsibility. And acceptance is not found that way, right? If you take no responsibility um, for any of your problems, you blame other people, you blame them for your eating, you're not gonna achieve sobriety and you can't be happy. If You walk around blaming other people for your food addiction, you can't get abstinent and you can't get happy. And others I found out are never to blame for my eating. Doesn't matter what my situations was like growing up, it doesn't matter what people may have done to me whether it was, you know, deliberate or mistakenly, if I walk around blaming other people in the past or in the present, I can't get abstinent and I certainly can't be happy. Page four hundred eight, it says, "I had begun to drink in the early years of pharmacy school in order to get to sleep after going to school all day, working in the family drugstore all evening." And then studying until one or two in the morning, I would not be able to sleep soundly with everything I had been studying going round in my head. I'd be half asleep and half awake. And in the morning I would be both tired and stupid. Then I found the solution. At the end of study time, I would drink two beers, jump in bed, sleep real fast and wake up smart. I mean, and I read that and I think, okay, (laughs) I don't think you're going to wake up smart, right? I mean, it sounds pretty foolish to me. Um, And I had lots of foolish reasons why I could eat and how it was actually going to help me. And at this point in the story, he doesn't have a problem yet. You know, in fact, what he has is a solution to his problem. And we've heard that, right? That for many of us, eating is the solution. And Um, And for lots of people, food is a very effective solution. It can take the edge off. It can soothe your hurts. It can enhance your celebrations. But here's the problem, not for us, right? That's what separates the compulsive overeater from a regular eater. Regular eaters use food to take the edge off. And that's why there's cocktail hours and happy hours and buffets and come and have a little snack and milk and cookies and an ice cream. And we give the kid a lollipop after they get a shot, right? Or we used to. Food does something, it, it's pretty effective, not so for us. And now we can also say in his story, we can start to see the progression. And it's just you know, just like in Bill's story, we, we see in any of our stories, we can see the progression. And here how it becomes a necessity. And I'm age 109, I'm sorry, not 109, 409. It says, "My drinking kept increasing. But I thought it was because my responsibilities were increasing. If you had my responsibilities, if you needed the sleep like I do, you'd drink too. And you know his story goes on, and I have to say it's very frightening when I read his story. It it kind of creeps me out. The heavy drug use—I mean, serious heavy drug use—putting himself to sleep using, you know, using intravenous drugs. um, The drinking, and and what I find frightening is his really his complete disregard for human life because he was a doctor, a practicing doctor. And some of what you read in his story is is horrific to think that he was a doctor at this time. And I could spend time on this. And yet I really, I want to like kind of move it to focus more on the topic of acceptance. But by all means, it's a great story to read, um, powerful. In page 411, it says, then I finally decided to give it up. But to do so, I had to get all the stuff out of the house and out of my possession. And in the end, I had to do the same with alcohol and all pills. So he had a pill problem and he had an alcohol problem. He had to get rid of them both. And they had to be out of the house. I wasn't able to quit chemicals as long as they were in the house. If they were around, I always found a need for them, especially the pills. So here he's beginning to have some acceptance, maybe not recovery yet, but some acceptance. He's accepting the fact, the idea that he can't have the stuff around. And I have had that awareness. And I have to say, if you're struggling in early abstinence, it's a pretty good suggestion, right? You might need to get the stuff out of your house so you can quit. Right, And we know that might not be the long range problem or the long range solution, but it's certainly a start. If you can't handle having it around, don't. Don't have it around. Um, it says here, I always took it, meaning the pills, because I had the symptom that only the pill would relieve. Therefore, every pill was medically indicated at the time it was taken. And I've underlined and highlighted this part. For me, pills don't produce the desire to swallow a pill. They produce the symptoms that require the pill be taken fully. Okay? And I can relate that completely to the food. In terms of the food, eating produces a specific type for me of self-hatred and depression and pain, both physical and mental, that calls me to eat more, right? Food produces this thing inside me that makes me want to eat. And nothing so much made me want to eat as the self-hatred I felt after I overate, right? What did I do after I overate? I may as well eat more. I might as well eat more. Um, You know, nothing suited the pain of morbid obesity as much as eating Ben and Jerry's, right? Having a hard day, being over 300 pounds. And it was, there were hard days physically navigating the world in a large body that doesn't fit in the places you need to go. And what I would do when I came home, would I would eat more food, very similar to what he's describing here. And today... He goes on to say, I find I can't work my AA program while taking pills, nor may I even have them around for dire emergencies only. I can't say thy will be done and take a pill. I can't say I'm powerless over alcohol, but solid alcohol is okay. I can't say God could restore me to sanity, but until he does, I'll control myself with pills. Giving up alcohol alone was not enough for me. I had to give up all mood and mind-affecting chemicals in order to stay sober and comfortable. And so here's some more acceptance. Yes, acceptance of God's will, right? Thy will be done, it says. But also acceptance that I can't seek his will while intoxicated or while eating. I am unable to seek God's will. I can't discern God's will when I'm eating. I don't know what it is when I'm eating because food is my master, right? So I can't tell what's God's will and what's my disease's will. An acceptance also of my own personal limitations and sensitivities, right? His personal limitation was he could not have any pills around whatsoever because he couldn't stay sober that way. He couldn't have any alcohol around. Because you couldn't stay sober that way. And you couldn't stay from the pills that way. And I have found for me that this is the case with me and my abstinence. For me, and this is my own personal limitations, which I've had to accept. I can't have alcohol and stay abstinent. It's, you know, while I'm not an alcoholic, as soon as I drink, I eat. It goes pretty soon to the food. Um, And I know that, and that's a limitation of myself that I've accepted. Page four thirteen, it says, in the hospital, I hung on to the idea I've had most of my life, that if I could just control the external environment, the internal environment would then become comfortable. And this is a common misconception. And I certainly believed, I think all of my life, that if things were different, then I'd feel different. Things were different, then I could be different. And I've come to see that it's exactly the other way. If I am different, then things become different, right? It's actually the opposite. When I change, the things around me change. If I wait for the things around me to change, I can't change, has to be the opposite. Page 414 says, and life keeps getting simpler and easier as we try to reverse my old idea by taking care of the internal environment via the 12 steps and letting go the external environment takes care of itself. So here we're given real clear direction. If we're having a struggle, if I'm having a struggle, I need to recognize that the struggle is existing inside of me. If I have a problem, I'm the one with the problem. The problem is internal and not external. I can use the steps to remedy my internal environment me inside and the external environment here's what happens when the internal environment gets worked on gets relieved what happens externally is it may not change it might actually stay exactly the same but what is guaranteed to change is my perception of the problem right so for example. I might have an issue with my boss in my workplace. I can carry on and cry and fight and dig my heels in all I want and my boss will never change. But if I take the principles of this program and I apply it to myself and I work my 12 steps, my perception of that person changed. And that is my truth. That is exactly what has happened with many people in my life, but one in particular is my boss. My, I worked on my own spiritual growth. I've worked the steps. I continue to work the steps. I continue to live the steps. Practice acceptance. She is exactly as she's supposed to be. And the way that I perceive her is entirely different. The way I feel about her, entirely different. Page 415, if he could get me to go to enough meetings while in the hospital. Now he's talking about he's in the hospital and there's, you know, he's getting help um, and he wants to get out of the hospital. So he says, all right, if I go to enough meetings while I'm in the hospital, um, I convince him that I'll continue to go after he lets me out. So for no better reason than to fool him I asked Frank to take me to a meeting every night. So his intentions were not very good, right? His intentions for going to meetings didn't sound very good. And it says right from the start, I felt that they weren't doing anything for me, but they sure were helping Max. Max in this in his story, when you read it, is his wife. And he believed all his problems were her. She was the cause of all his problems. And he's got a wonderfully humorous way of telling his story. Um, um, But he, he realized, wow, this isn't helping me, but it's helping Max. We sat in the back and talked only to each other. So him and his wife would go to meetings. They, he didn't, he was really there for, not for himself. He wasn't there for any good reason. Um, other than to get someone off his back, to get his own way. And it seemed like his wife liked it. So they would sit in the back and talk to each other. I mean, doesn't sound like he's really, uh, you know, intensively working the program. And to me, these are excellent reminders that we need to see the potential in the fellow who sits there unconvinced and seemingly disinterested, right? We don't have to be concerned about someone's motives in attending our meetings. We don't really have to worry about that. It's not really our business. Perhaps they're there to get someone off their back. Maybe that's the reason that they're coming. Um, Or even to keep someone company. Maybe they're sitting there. They're the real addict, but they think that they're coming to keep their partner company. We can trust God will help those fellows identify in and recover if it be his will, right? So we, we can welcome them warmly. And- It says here, it was precisely a year before I spoke at an AA meeting. Although we enjoyed the laughter in the early days, I heard a lot of things that I thought was stupid. So he's sitting there in meetings. He's kind of enjoying the laughter around it, but he thinks it's stupid. He thinks that a lot of what he's hearing is dumb and stupid. And I have to say, I never been in that spot too. I remember sitting in meetings thinking, this is crazy. These people are nuts, but I don't know. I I think I'll keep coming, right? Um, And now it says here, when a big healthy looking young fellow stood up there and said, I'm a success today if I don't drink today. I thought, man, I've got a thousand things to do today before I can brag about not taking a drink, for God's sakes, right? And of course it says, I was still drinking at the time right? So he's still drinking. And today there is absolutely nothing in the world more important to me than keeping, than my keeping this alcoholic sober, not taking a drink is by far the most important thing I do each day. And while I know that perhaps the most important thing today is my relationship with my God, with God, right? With my higher power with God, I also know that my abstinence is my invitation for his entry into my life. That if I fail to do my very best to be abstinent, I'm closing the door and locking him out. I'm saying I'm really not interested. But if I wanna invite God in, I will do everything in my power, right? To live in abstinence. So long as I'm abstinent, I actually have a chance. That's how I feel. If I'm abstinent, if I do everything in my power to be abstinent, I've got a shot at being happy. When days are hard, I can remind myself that if I remained abstinent despite the difficulties, then you know what? It was a successful day after all. Sometimes my goals are just that small. Sometimes I set the bar just that low, right? That's my baseline. That's my baseline. And I know it says here, I know that giving up one drink for one day wouldn't really do any good. This is what he says. Finally, after seven months, I decided to give it a try, to try it. So it takes him seven months to even try. Think about it, he's coming to meetings. He's laughing at people. He's thinking, all right, his wife's getting better. He's only doing it to please other people. He's coming for seven months before he even made an attempt. Think about people who come for seven months before they even decide to get a food plan, right? And I emphasize this really in, in order to offer hope, not to say to you, keep coming and do nothing, right? That's not really what I'm trying to say. But what I am trying to say is if you're still sitting here and you haven't tried it yet, there's hope for you too. Or if you're sitting here judging people who haven't tried it yet, remember there's hope for them too, right? And now it goes on to say that I'm amazed at how many of my problems, most of which had nothing to do with drinking, I believed have become manageable, or have simply disappeared since I quit drinking. And this is one of the keys to acceptance and trust in God. If I trust God and work the steps, my problems become manageable. Not by me, right? But because we form a relationship with the manager. So my problems actually become manageable. Things I can live with, and work around or they actually disappear, right? That's what happens to my problems. They either become things that no longer exist or they kind of suddenly seem to be non-issues. Wasn't really a problem after all, was it? And I give this example for me about my boss for a moment. Because I had had, you know, great difficulty with my boss at one point, really worked up over her and um, and my perception of her and how she was treating me, and and felt horrible and felt why doesn't she like me and I'm trying everything and um, and what happened was when I really continue to practice the principles, work these steps, live in the steps, I realized something. One. Um, I don't know that she doesn't like me. I mean, I don't know that she really cares to be honest, one way or the other. Like, I don't think she had that strong an opinion about me. That was one thing I realized. And the other thing I realized was, it's not a job requirement to be liked. (laughs) It's nowhere on the job description that she liked me. I have to be effective at my job nonetheless. I have to do my best and it's not part of my job description to get her to like me, right? And the other wonderful thing that my sponsor would point out to me consistently is when I'm concerned about someone liking me or not liking me, my sponsor would ask me, well, do you like them? And that would, I would be like, what does that have to do with anything? And she would say, well, do you have a right? like who you like and don't like, perhaps they have the equal right as well. And I realized over time, you know, the other thing that this became a non-issue was my husband asked me one day. No, it wasn't my husband. Someone else asked me one day if I was in danger of losing my job. May have been my husband. May have been asked it repeatedly by other people too. And I was like, oh no, no, no. I'm in no danger of losing my job. I have a I have a contract. I've got really good you know, I'm in a union. I have really good reviews. I've never been written up for anything per se. No, no, no. I'm I'm okay. Okay, then it's not a problem. What do you what do you care? What do you care? And and that was that was part of it too. It turns out it really wasn't a problem after all. Um page 416 it says here by early July this is his story, I had tapered off alcohol completely and I got off all pills in the ensuing months. And I think this is interesting because sobriety and abstinence does not happen automatically for some people, right? And we need to make sure the ones who are tapering off are not sent away because they're not entirely abstinent or not entirely surrendered. Now, I don't, it doesn't say that he worked the steps at this point. It doesn't say that he was taken through the the book, right? It doesn't say, but he certainly was accepted while he was tapering off. And I think we need to have the same spirit. I need to have the same spirit of non-judgmentalism by people who might not become entirely abstinent overnight, who might take a process. And I have to say for myself, My abstinence became different. My definition, what I thought was abstinence at one point, actually no longer was abstinence for me. What I defined as abstinence, you know, for some of us, the path grows narrower. For him, his initial abstinence might have just been stay away from the pills, or his initial abstinence might have just been Don't drink alcohol, right? And then he found out certainly he needed to put everything down. And that was my experience that I thought I could do certain things. You know, for me, it was like artificial sweeteners. And that was my own experience. I thought I could be abstinent and still continue to have those things. And what I found out was for me, I can't, right? And so I would say that was a tapering off until I realized that it was a problem. When I realized it was a problem, I was able to put it down. So we don't send people off. He was not sent off, he was welcomed. When the compulsion, now he's gonna talk about when the compulsion to drink left. When it left, it was relatively easy to stay off alcohol, but for some time it was difficult to keep from taking a pill. When I had an appropriate symptom, such as a cough, pain, anxiety, insomnia, a muscle spasm, or an upset stomach, it has gotten progressively easier. Today, I feel I have used up my right to chemical peace of mind. And this is acceptance that he's given up He's surrendered to having peace of mind through the use of chemicals. And for me, I have to say, this is acceptance of my way of eating. I have used up my right to eat spontaneously and without a plan. I've used up my right to not commit food, right? I That right has been taken away from me. I've used it up. My abstinence, Requires that I accept that fact. It requires that I have acceptance over that fact. Now it says here, it helped me a great deal to become convinced that alcoholism was a disease, not a moral issue. That I had been drinking as a result of a compulsion, even though I had not been aware of the compulsion at the time, and that sobriety was not a matter of willpower. My abstinence is not due to strong willpower. I am abstinent today because God has removed the obsession and desire. And that's it, right? That's what we have. And the people in AA, it says here, had something that looked much better than what I had. But I was afraid to let go of what I had in order to try something new. There was a certain sense of security in the familiar. And so here's something else we need to have acceptance for. Acceptance of my discomfort and of feeling insecure. As we embark on this new way of life, it's awkward, right? It's awkward for us and radically different from our old lives. And, you know, it's it's kind of sad, but true. We get comfortable living in discomfort right? Being uncomfortable was weirdly comfortable for me, right? It was what I knew. So I need to have acceptance that actually in early recovery and really in life, I'm not going to feel comfy, cozy all the time. Like sometimes I'm going to feel awkward. Sometimes it's going to feel weird. Now it goes on. It says at last acceptance proved to be the key to my drinking problem. After I had been around AA for seven months, tapering off alcohol and pills, not finding the program working very well, I was finally able to say, okay, God, it is true that I, of all people, strange as it may seem, and even though I didn't give my permission, really, really, I'm an alcoholic of all sorts. And it's all right with me, right? He says, it's okay with him. I'm an alcoholic. Seven months of struggling, seven months of tapering off. He finally surrenders. He finally says, I am it. And it's it's okay. I'm okay with being this. And then he says, now what am I going to do about it? And that's always the best question when we get to that point. The acceptance of, whoa, I have this problem. What am I gonna do about it? What am I gonna do? And when I stopped living, it says when I stopped living in the problem and began living in the answer, the problem went away. From that moment on, I have not had a single compulsion to drink. So he's not saying to God in that moment, make my alcoholism go away, right? We don't say to God, I I don't want to be a compulsive overeater. Make it not so, take this away. Instead, he's living in acceptance and asking God what he should do about it. And that's what we do too, right? We reach that point, we surrender, we say, You know what, I got it. Now, what am I gonna do about it? Now, what should I do about it? And I think a big part of step one isn't just the admission that I have a problem, but the acceptance that I have a problem. And for me, it's the acceptance that I am a distinct entity. That's the true acceptance of my disease, that I am not like other people, that I am different from other people, and then I need to live a different way than most other people do. When we take this kind of position and we stop trying to solve the problem on our own, but instead ask God to direct us, what happens is the compulsion to drink or eat can get removed. It can get removed from that position. Page 417. And acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I'm disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me. And I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is to be at this moment. Nothing. Absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. Until I could accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober. Unless I accept life completely on life's terms, I cannot be happy. So I have to accept my compulsive overeating first in order to get abstinent, and I have to accept my life completely in order to get happy. I need to concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world as on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And it's such a beautiful way of looking at my struggles with other people and with situations. To accept things are exactly as they are meant to be in this Very moment. God, you know, God is perfect. That's what we have to believe. That God's plan is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. Even if it looks like this surely can't be the plan, even if it looks like it's going horribly wrong, I have to believe that I'm wrong, that my assessment of it is wrong, that my perception of it is wrong. That my perspective is too small to see the whole picture. God is perfect. Doesn't make mistakes, even if it looks like it surely can't be the plans. So then what do we do? What do we do then? We ask for direction on what needs to be changed in ourselves. What do I need to change in me and in my attitude and the way that I perceive it? The way that I look at it, and and I'll and I'll kind of I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I always use my daughter as an example. She's so amazing. She's such a great example for me um, because I've learned so much. I've learned so much from my mother, and from my daughter. Those have been my greatest life's teachers. But here's here's the example for my daughter. I absolutely had a plan set in stone for what my girl's life was gonna be. I am an educator. I just you know, I say that all the time, I'm an educator and I love school and I love education. And my daughter is so bright, like crazy smart. And I absolutely had a plan that she was gonna go to college and go to a good college, right? And, um, you know, I had to accept <laughs> that my daughter had a different plan than what, than what the plan that I had. And we fought tooth and nail about it throughout her senior year in high school. And at one point she gave in. She was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll go to college. And she went, and then the pandemic hit and she wound up coming home, right? Because everybody came home. And doing her school from home, she tanked. She could not do school from home. And then she decided, I want to do school after all, and I was, I was like horrified. This, I had no, I was like trying to figure out how to get this girl in school, how she could do it. Maybe you try this. Maybe you try that. What if you, what if you go part time? What if you do this program? And she tried all different sorts of things. Right. And here's what happened. She wound up working in the Y as a lifeguard. Right. While working in the Y as a lifeguard, she started teaching swim classes and wound up teaching um, some, some autistic kids swimming and found out, wow, she really likes that. She really enjoys working with them. And during that time, she also met who the woman who's now her wife. She happened to meet her partner who's been like, Nobody in a million years, I could never have chosen a better partner for my daughter. She met her while working at the Y. And she meets the woman who's my mother's companion, who takes care of my mother now. I mean, none of this would have ever happened. We went from a situation where we could not figure out what to do with my mother, to my daughter now meets the person who not only is my mother's companion, but it's like my mother's best friend. My mother adores her. She is like a member of our family. I never ever would have picked any of that out. And so, you know, it turns out my plan was not the plan, right? Turns out, you know, and and today my daughter is not working in the Y anymore either. She actually works as a works for a, a young woman who has autism. She's her companion, her caregiver, and she loves it. She's thrilled. Um, you know, so I had to have acceptance, right? And thankfully, my acceptance happened before the plan unfolded and presented itself. I began to have acceptance. And I found out God's plan is definitely better than my plan. And I've had these experiences happen repeatedly for me. And in AA, AA and acceptance have taught me that there is a bit of good in the worst of us and a bit of bad in the best of us, that we are all children of God and we each have a right to be here. When I complain about me or about you, I am complaining about God's handiwork. I am saying that I know better than God. So I can increase my acceptance when I look intentionally to find the good in others and to refrain from complaining. When I'm complaining, what am I doing? I'm criticizing God, I'm critiquing God, right? How incredibly arrogant of me (laughs) that I am gonna critique God's amazing work. Page 418 says, for years I was sure that the worst thing that could happen to a nice guy like me would be that I would turn out to be an alcoholic. And today I find it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Amen. (laughs) This proves I don't know what's good for me. And if I don't know what's good for me, then I don't know what's good or bad for you or for anyone. And that has been my truth too, that if you would have asked me what the worst thing in my life could have been, I would have told you it was morbid obesity. I would have told you that the worst thing in the world that could ever happen to a nice person like me was to be 300 pounds, was to have a food addiction, was to have many of the situations that have happened in my life. And actually when I found out, it is the best thing that ever happened to me. I met you know, as a result of OA, I have a relationship with God. I don't know that I ever would have had the necessity or the desire to cultivate a relationship with God. And as it turns out, I thought compulsive overeating was going to be the biggest problem in my life. And it turned out to be the entryway to the solution for the other problems that followed, right? Because When other problems knocked on my door, I have a relationship with God. And I trust if he could perform a miracle of removing the desire to eat compulsively, if he could perform the physical miracle of my body's transformation, if he could change my thinking of somebody who could not stop eating certain foods to someone who doesn't even care about them, there's not a problem in the world that I don't believe that God can solve, right? And I've I've gotten my faith because he solved this particular problem for me. So if I don't know that, if I don't even know that that was a good thing, how in the world could I possibly know who should go to college, who shouldn't go to college, how my boss should behave, how she shouldn't behave, where my mother should live, where my mother shouldn't live, who should take care of my mother? I know very little, right? And so we're told I'm better off if I don't give advice. Don't figure I know what's best and just accept life on life's terms as it is today, especially my own life as it actually is. Now we're told acceptance has been the answer to my marital problems. It's been the answer to everything because AA has given me a new pair of glasses. It was as if I had, and he always talking about having this Midas touch, which turns everything to gold, but we get a magnifying mind that magnifies whatever we focus on. Over the years, as I thought about Max, her good qualities grew and grew and we married and all these qualities became more apparent to me. We were happier and happier. But then as he drinks more, The alcohol seemed to affect his vision. And he found more of her problems and saw more of her defects. And the more I focus my mind on what is wrong, the more those problems multiply. The more I complain, if I go to my workplace and I start complaining, then there's a million things to complain about. If I look to find fault, those things appear all over the place. Every defect I point out grows and grows, becomes greater and greater. And then we're told, right? That I had the lenses and my glasses on backwards. I had to turn them around. I needed to see the good. I had to start seeing the good in things. If I see the good in things, the good grows. Now it says here, the courage to change in the serenity prayer Meant not that I should change my marriage, not that I should change my daughter, not that I should change my boss, not that I should change my workplace, my husband, but rather I should change myself and learn to accept my spouse, I would say my daughter, my boss, my workplace, away, right? Meetings as being exactly as they're supposed to be. And then I got a new pair of glasses and then I can focus on the good qualities. And when I focus on the good qualities, they grow and grow. And they even talk about doing that at a meeting. If you go to a meeting and you're looking to grumble, oh, I can't believe that person is sharing again. Oh my gosh, they just shared yesterday. I can't stomach what she has to say. Or I can't believe that, you know, whatever it is, whatever the the problem is. If there's something in the meeting that bothers you, we're told, see what you can add to it rather than what you can get out of it. Look to see what's good about it rather than what's wrong with it. And when you do that, things keep getting better and better. And I find that, you know, when I look to see the good in my students, in my children, in my husband, in my home, Those things present themselves to me. They get better and better. It says here, when I focus on what's good today, I have a good day. And when I focus on what's bad, I have a bad day. If I focus on the problem, the problem increases. If I focus on the answer, the answer increases. And this is why I have a gratitude practice. And I would strongly encourage anybody to have a gratitude practice. Specific, detailed things that I'm grateful for each day. Not just a blank, I'm happy for my husband, I'm grateful for my husband. Specific, look for the good so that the good can grow. And what it does is it helps us to have better days because my reality is my perception. Reality is how we perceive it. And here's this quick I know we're like running out of time. Page 420, it says, perhaps the best thing for all all for me is to remember that my serenity is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher my expectations, the lower my serenity. If I discard my expectations, my serenities rise. If I disregard my rights, what I have a right to, I get happier because after all, if in order to get those rights fulfilled, I lose my serenity and my emotional sobriety, how important is it really? Here's the exact directions for how to practice acceptance. Ask God for direction. Do what we think he would have us do and then leave the results up to him. This is so helpful in all areas of our lives with people who struggle and anybody that doesn't seem to follow our plans. We keep the magic magnifying mind on our acceptance and off of our expectation. And when I remember this, I can see that I never had it so good. Thank God for O.A. with that office.